Welcome to the very first episode of Verge ESP, an entertainment and science podcast on The Verge. Uh, We're going to be a bi-weekly show discussing art, science, and human beings. I'm Emily Yoshida. I'm the entertainment editor at The Verge, based in New York. And on the other side of the country, in beautiful San Francisco, California, I am joined by Liz Lopato, the science editor at The Verge as well. Um, Liz, how did I do with that tagline? I kind of just made it up. Uh, <laughs> solid? <laughs> I think it works, you know. I mean, that's that's sort of what we're about, right? Is the... the um the various cultures, uh, the science culture and the arts culture. Yeah, and the the beautiful third culture that arises when they converge. And I, I mean, I want to keep it open, too. I mean, we, we definitely want to, on this podcast, we want to definitely have a lot of people on to talk about the stuff they do, whether that's in entertainment or in science. That's going to be a really big focus. So, yeah, human beings. Human yeah, beings are people. Great. This is a podcast about people. Yeah. And speaking of people, uh, later on, I'll be talking to two very cool people, um, Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers, who are the creators of Halt and Catch Fire, which premieres its second season this Sunday. So stick around for that. So um, so I thought we we're going to kick it off with a little bit of news from both of our respective worlds. And um, I just came back from the Cannes Film Festival, which um, I had never been to before. I believe it's the 68th Cannes Film Festival in the south of France, it is um, pretty much considered to be the most important film festival in in the year and the schedule of all the various festivals that happen around the world. And also, and, it's in the south of France, right? Yeah. Like, so people definitely show up. Yeah, that's a that's a definite benefit to it. And I think I went there kind of with the question of, well, how useful is this? Like, why do people continue to? you know, make this trip out here. I mean, I went to the uh, the Sundance Film Festival for the first time uh, earlier this year, and that was something I sort of started to think about while I was there. Is so, for the press, at least, so much of your time is standing in lines waiting to see a movie <laughs> in what's usually kind of a crappy, like, strip mall movie theater, because that's where a lot of the press screenings happen. It's like, why isn't this digitized? Is this just so we're all hanging out? Like, is it just for the sake of hanging out? Um, which is definitely a benefit for people who are making movies and buying movies. But for press, it's like, ugh, I kind of like to do this on my couch, to be honest. Like, I'm not even going to parties because I need to work. So, um, But it was fun. I mean, it's kind of just one of these things that's totally arcane and definitely kind of outdated, but still a lot of fun. You can't really deny that about it. Um, so how did the how do the two stack up together? I mean, Sundance, it sounds like, especially given the, the strip mall venues, um, it doesn't seem like it would be nearly as glamorous as a bunch of movie stars in bikinis on the beach. Am I wrong? Right. It's, uh, it's a different kind of glamour. It's a very much more uh, American indie glamour. Like, these are the cool kids who wear, like, their dark rim glasses on the red carpet. And can, I mean, you've got some of the most amazing gowns that celebrities will wear all year. You know, it's it's like, I, I think a lot of times it's uh, above Oscar level as far as the fanciness and formality. So... Um, I don't know. It depends on what you're into. I mean, and and can and can is a much more international festival. They're both they're both technically international festivals, but can it's definitely not America centric the way that a lot of the um, the Sundance movies are. And there's definitely a lot more. You definitely see the benefit of having a, a program in your country where they fund independent films because <laughs> i mean you see these big budget movies. some of the, the the stranger and more visually inventive movies i saw like this film tale of tales by matteo garone this um italian director i mean it's just like absolutely opulent and lush and it was i believe it was funded by you know several different film funds in the various countries that he worked in and we don't really have an equivalent of that in the states so you see a lot more kickstarter stuff and people kind of scraping by with smaller budgets but so emily are we are we advocating socialism here in the in the name of art is that is that where we're going i'm all for state-funded art i mean come on (laughs) um i mean there's something also kind of nice about seeing somebody who can, you know, make it happen through, like, stitching together some things and just sort of jerry-rigging a film together. And that's, yeah. like, a lot of the victory stories out of Sundance or things like that. But it's also great to be able to see what people are able to do when their governments give them the money to make ridiculous movies about 
Salma Hayek eating the heart of a sea monster. I mean, who doesn't want to see that? I want to see that. <laughs> it's amazing. Whenever that comes I was sold to as soon States, as I knew there was heart eating going on. Oh yeah, there's a. I mean, it's 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 in English. It's like got a lot of recognizable stars in it, and they're all doing stuff like yeah, killing sea monsters, uh, raising gigantic fleas. Um, there's a scene where. Vincent Cassell kicks a peacock into a fountain. Yes. It's it's just great. It's like, why not? Just do it. <laughs> um, but so while I was in possibly the most removed from reality uh, setting in the world last week, uh, I wasn't even aware that something kind of horrific happened uh, in the United States and not far from... Uh, not far from your home in California, my former home in Los Angeles. Um, That's right. There was a big oil spill in Santa Barbara County. Um, and I mean, this was, this was Tuesday. I think you would have been on the flight back even. It wouldn't have been like you were glamorously like flitting around going to screenings or anything like that. You would have been like cramped on an airplane. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, which is its own special. I was watching Moonstruck on uh, on the flight. On the oh, flight. Moonstruck is so good. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. It's great. Oh. Anyway, let's back, get back to the, <laughs> the oil spill. The oil spill. Um, so there's been this oil spill in Santa Barbara County. It looks like it might be as big as um, 2,500 barrels, um, which wow. is uh, over 100,000 gallons. Um, that's the worst case scenario. Um, we're hoping it's not that bad. So has but, this affected the coast and like the the town at all? Like, is is Santa Barbara like in shutdown mode right now? Um, I'm not sure if Santa Barbara itself is in shutdown mode, but it's definitely affecting the coast. And so the the real um, sticking point here, the reason I think people are so upset, is that the area is that that's most affected is a protected cove, um, mm. and so it's you know home to seals and sea lions and birds, and also you know people like to go kayaking there. They surf. There are a lot of campers. You know, this is a sort of an outdoorsy place, and this was a very very beautiful protected area that has now just been covered in oil. Wow. So is this a national emergency at this point now? It is is a state emergency. California is currently in a state of emergency. Um, The name of the beach is Refugio uh, State Beach. Um, It's just outside Santa Barbara. It's um, a ways north of uh, Los Angeles, like maybe 140, 150 miles. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also, this area was also the site of one of like the the worst oil spills, um, like the third worst in American history in 1969. Uh, there was an oil spill there that um, basically kicked off the environmentalist movement. Um, it was uh, an offshore platform in that case, whereas this is mm. a, a pipeline. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, so it's like a deja vu a little bit, I think, for folks. Had it, was there still, I mean, like obviously the repercussions when something like that happens, like it goes on for a really long time. Was that something that more or less got cleaned up and the environment was able to bounce back or were there still kind of, was there still damage from that, the 1969 spill? Well, so the environment at this point had mostly bounced back um, yeah. because, you know, the damage, the damage stays for years, obviously. Um, all of these, these animals are affected and, um, it, you know, when large populations of animals are die off or are otherwise compromised, um, it affects the next generation too. And so it takes the environment a little, a little while to recover. Um, you know, and the, the pipeline that had been leaking, uh, had been carrying crude since like the 1990s. Um, and I believe it was it was uh, used to move oil pumped um, from a facility owned by Exxon to refineries that are inland. Um, so you know um, Exxon, you may remember from the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill in Alaska a couple decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a mess, uh, yeah. it, you know. And I I spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, because it turns out I'm one of those terrible people that like lives in California is like, let's go hiking. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of those people. There's nothing wrong with it. That's, <laughs> then that's you actually, moved to New York and got yeah. your edge. <laughs> well, no, no. Every time I'm in something even remotely rural, I'm like, oh, my God, a tree. It's so great. <laughs> um, I mean, but that, you know, that along with the 
you know, the, the, the damage, obviously, to things that people there really enjoy. I mean, like, part of being a Californian is, I feel like, culturally, is just enjoying the outdoors there, enjoying the different environments there. And that's, like, definitely something with the drought that kind of breaks my heart. Like, Yeah. I, I mean, g- it's just, it's, it's, it's a, an astonishingly beautiful place for any listeners who have never been. Just, like, ridiculously beautiful. If people were to paint these landscapes, you'd think they were overblown. Mm-hmm. And nature just has no sense of scale or proportion, basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I... Is California going to break off and float into the ocean? I'm uh, asking the science editor this important <laughs> science question. I mean, <laughs> eventually, probably. Uh, <laughs> really? Okay. But I'm uh, listening. It, to, to, to borrow the words of Warren, Warren Zevon, uh, I suspect the hotel will be standing until I pay my bill. So <laughs> I, I think we've got a little bit. Um, what I'm hoping, though, is that this sort of is a reminder to people um, about some of the ills of oil drilling because we're opening up um, part of the Arctic now. And the Arctic has been a very protected area. And uh, the idea that we would <laughs> that we would be subjecting these very fragile ecosystems to this kind of damage just really upsets me um, yeah. on an almost a visceral level. Uh, you know, I, I, we write a lot about um, alternate energy, clean energy, and thinking about ways to sort of reduce oil dependence. And, you know, one of the, the biggest benefits I can think of is that you don't end up with things like the Deepwater Horizon spill or this right. oil spill or Exxon. You know what I mean? Like, if you spill too much sunlight, oh, no, the uh, grass grows a little faster, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I, I know that there's sort of this uh, probably right now for listeners, first time listeners, which we are first time podcasters for this this podcast, there's going to be a little bit of distance for a lot of our topics. But I swear there is logic behind talking about the Cannes Film Festival and talking about an oil spill in Santa Barbara in the same podcast, because we're kind of trying to look at everything in a little bit of like a holistic way. And I mean, that actually reminds there actually was a film at at um at, at Cannes that I didn't actually get to see. It was a documentary, though, about about uh, the drilling in the Arctic and uh, and just sort of a kind of last look at a lot of these landscapes that are disappearing up there. And yeah. it's uh, uh, I don't know, as somebody who's like highly romanticizes the Arctic Circle, it's uh, definitely a shame. Oh, but, yeah. I was up in Alaska last summer. Um, I went backpacking in Denali and it's an astonishingly gorgeous place. It's just yeah. surreal. Um, you know, and I'd love to go to the Arctic Circle. Hint, hint. I to know. anybody who's listening. <laughs> I know. Please, please bankroll a trip for the, to the... Can we do a podcast from the Arctic Circle? I know this is our first podcast, but come on. It can yeah, happen. we should be wildly successful, and then we should have a cruise. <laughs> yes. We'll have a podcast-themed cruise to the Arctic Circle, like an icebreaker on a barge. <laughs> Um, we're dreaming big already. It's our first week, but we're dreaming big. Um, um, uh, but so, you know, one of the things that, that oil reminds me of and natural resource management reminds me of is this movie I saw this week. Which I haven't seen yet. Oh, my God. I was going to try to last night. It was sold out. But go ahead. Go um, ahead. So I saw Mad Max, uh, which is amazing. <laughs> Um, like it, you know, I love big explosions in movies. I mean, in life also, but usually in life, there's generally like some sort of human cost attached. Like I like watching building demolitions when I know there's nobody who's going to get hurt. Right. Um, like (laughs) rocket launches, like, you know, those kinds of explosions, but like movie explosions, whatever, like those actors are fine. Um, and so it had, it was like, it was this really wonderful, tightly paced action movie, uh, that also had a passed the Bechdel test, um, which for, for those of you who don't know what that is, um, do you have more than one female character? Do those characters talk to each other? Do those characters talk to each other about something other than a man? And the answer is yes for all awesome. three questions. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but I will say that one of the things that, like, <laughs> as ridiculous as the flaming guitar was, like, that was not, like, something that pulled me out of the reality of the thing. Uh-huh. Um, what did pull me out a little bit was the way that they were managing their water in this post-apocalyptic hellscape. <laughs> what do, do you think that there's? I mean, if you want to try to kind of tie everything together, I mean, there is something that's extremely cathartic about watching 
You know, something like Mad Max or even something that's not quite as bananas like, uh, I mean, it's still pretty bananas, but the Fast and Furious movies. Like, just this, it almost feels nostalgic for something that's present day. Like, like this idea that we're not going to be able to drive these huge cars and burn all this gas up in, in like, probably the, the near future or, like, while you and I are still alive. And there's something about these movies where it's just like, yeah, just, like, blow up cars, have them drive through multiple skyscrapers in Dubai, uh, just like, just revel in the idea of, of motor fuel. <laughs> well, so Mad Max, I, uh, I, I love Mad, the Mad Max films, by the way, yeah. just as an FYI. Um, but like, so they, that actually came out of like the Hoon car culture in Australia. Um, like the first movie, uh, was sort of explicitly about all of these these dumb kids in Australia who were, like, souping up their cars and then, like, killing themselves with their, like, two powerful cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was, like, sort of the inspiration. Uh-huh. Um, and then, like, with each, like, subsequent movie, it gets crazier. Um, but the first one is, like, you know, it's it's a very near future kind of realistic hellscape. Right. right. <laughs> Rather than, like, you know, where we are with this, this most recent one. Um, but uh, so... I don't know if you've read, um, I, I, I'm not sure if it's Ballard or Ballard. Um, you'll have to forgive my, uh, my, my ignorance here. But uh, the, the book Crash, uh, which I think was made into a movie by um, Cronenberg. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one about, yeah, the car crashes. And the, yeah, yeah. Uh, and about like the sort of like sexual fetishism yeah. of death. Yeah. So he, that, the author of that book was like, you know, the most perfect adaptation of of my book was Mad Max 2. Oh, okay. Which is crazy. Um, but yeah, there is definitely some kind of like, uh, I, I don't know if nostalgia is the right word, but some kind of like fixation on our machines and how tentative they are yeah. and how when you have nothing left, you still want to crash them together. I don't, yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's something very different from like a sleek kind of sexy idea of the future. It's something where this is broken, but we're still addicted to it. And it's, you know, it's obviously nihilistic, but there's something very self-reflexive about it that I think is, you know, I think is good. And and Mad Max like totally invented the visual language of that kind of apocalypse for sure. Like we're still seeing things that look like Mad Max now. So um, it's definitely caught on in some way and continues to stick. Um, but you you were particularly interested in Charlize Theron's character in it, Furiosa. Oh my God! All Furiosa, everything. I will watch every <laughs> sequel. Like <laughs> I'm into it. She was so great. Um, and uh, part of what I loved about her um, was, I mean, oh, am I? Can I spoil? Am I allowed to spoil anybody? Do you mind? Um. Just uh, let's let's put a brief pause in where you can it's earmuffs time and then uh, and then we can go. So okay, here's our pause and do it in ten seconds. <laughs> go for it. Okay, so um, one of the things that I love is that this the, she's actually the narrative character. Like, if you're familiar with the Mad Max characters, he's only really driving the story in the first one, and the rest of them he's sort of along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And so this this story is the same way. And um, what I love is that the movie recognizes that. And so Furiosa is the one who's having this internal struggle and who at, at one point is deeply, deeply di- disillusioned. And we're allowed to see that, like not via Max, but just directly looking at her. Um, whereas often, you know, you when when I've noticed when I see women reacting in movies, you don't actually get the, the long shot of the woman like reacting. You get the shot of the woman reacting, and then there's an immediate smash cut to a dude watching her and reacting to that, which right. I don't care about. Right. Um, and so, so that was really nice that she was given that kind of space to be a full character. Um, yeah. But also, at the end of the movie, um, she's the one who gets the redemption. Um, she's the one who really just pulls things out and like there's this great great moment where you you under you understand or at least i understood that that miller understood what his movie was about (laughs) Mm -hmm. um where there's a shotgun there are three shells max shoots twice misses twice hands her the gun and steadies it while she shoots and she nails the target nice Um, and 
that was really beautiful. I love that like sort of spirit of cooperation between those two characters. That wasn't like a forced romance or anything like that. It was just sort of two people who were like deeply broken, who recognized and understood each other. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and had this respect for each other without mm-hmm. it being one of those things where like she was a love interest really. Yeah. That's actually surprising. I didn't, I, you know, I still haven't seen it. I, I'm, I'm don't mind getting spoiled too much. I know that there's too much crazy stuff that happens in it that I won't get too spoiled, but I wasn't aware that there's like no, no effort to make her into a love interest, which is awesome. That's like very, very yeah. rare. I feel like now. Yeah. She just exists. Um, which feels revolutionary a little. Like, she exists for her own reasons. Yeah. And um, she has some kind of crazy brain tech, too, right? Well, she does not, but we're going to get there. Wait. Um, she she, has... What she has is a prosthetic arm. Oh, she has um, a prosthetic arm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, was a spoiler for later in the podcast. <laughs> or, like, or right now. <laughs> or right now. That was a little spoiler for right now. I was segueing. Um, a, a spoiler for right now is also known as a segue. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so she has a prosthetic arm, uh, and actually, I am writing about. Uh, I've been writing about prosthetics for a while um, because they've been coming a long way, as they often do uh, when we're at war, and we have been at war for a while. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that's been really exciting has been um, sort of the advent of brain implants for um, uh, quadra paraplegics, tetraplegics, and, um, you know, other people who are sort of deeply, deeply inconvenienced by a spinal injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is something that's been sort of explored since, like, I think the first one was in 2006. It's really, really recent. Um, and the idea is that, you know, you put these, uh, like, chips in that, that, that read neurons firing in somebody's brain. And, um, they communicate with a computer and they can move a prosthetic limb. Um, and I just, you know, I want, I want you to imagine, um, being quadriplegic, um, you know, just all of the very basic things you can't do, um, right down to like control your own bladder, like just how helpless, um, you can be. And so being able to retain some kind of control, like even as something as, as small as like lifting a glass of water to your own lips yeah. uh, is pretty profound. Um, and what's exciting about the most recent um, study is that they're, they're looking at a slightly different area of the brain for, for implanting these chips, uh, and it may actually work better. Um, so the, the area that was used in 2006... Uh, is something called the primary motor cortex. Um, and that's like the part of the brain that tells which specific muscles um, you want to do what with. So like, you know, like flexor, um, uh-huh. you know, flex this, flex that, whatever. Um, whereas the, the area that this, the, this new study implanted in is a little bit higher level. So it's the part that says, I want to get a, that coffee cup. Oh, wow. Um, and what's exciting about it is that you can actually get a, a little bit of a, a less jerky movement, a little bit smoother, more controlled movement um, by doing that. Um, because it's thinking about an action as a whole idea rather than like just a series of motor functions. Correct. Right. right. And so like that, that sort of like lets um, the, the computer that's involved um, handle some of the finer details of how you coordinate the action rather than trying to, you know oh, I need to shift the arm a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. Wow. So what is this? So right now this is being used for prosthetics and for people who have, you know, obviously had some major, major uh, injuries. But like this kind of technology also obviously could have some other applications and maybe less less life and death or less dire uh Right. Uh, scenarios. Oh, like yeah. This could be very cool. But so I just want to be super clear about this. It's so yeah. far off. Um, right. Like right now, I, I want to say it's fewer than 20 people have had these kind of implants. And there are a lot of technical problems, right? Like hmm. uh, one of the big ones is that um, there's so much information that are um, that's being transmitted um, that basically they're running cables out of people's brains to transmit this information rather than doing it wirelessly, which of course leaves you open to infection. Yeah. Um, So there are a lot of like technical hurdles uh, that sort of need to be overcome. And it's also not totally clear how many um, neuron firing signals is ideal. Like right now um, the chip senses about a hundred 
Um, mm -hmm. It might be better with 10 or it might be better with 10,000. And we're just not sure. <laughs> so but you're basically sending like, I mean, what's the amount of data that it takes to like, say, yeah, pick up a pick up a cup of coffee, like in terms of like pure firepower coming from your brain that's going out of these cables. Yeah. Well, we don't. I mean, it's just I, I we're not even sure like how much how much we need to sense. You know what I mean? Mm. From the brain. Um so, so there's a lot of there are a lot of technological hurdles to overcome before this becomes um, a therapeutic device, right? Uh, much less a device that you know, like, because I, I, I of course am thinking like, yeah, I could definitely use an extra arm, like, yeah. sure, that would be very helpful, <laughs> or just like be able to. I mean, it's it's once you start to have devices or anything where you can power something physical by a thought, like that, just seems. I mean, you're really in the realm of science fiction there. And, like, I feel like there's a lot of ways that that could be used for ill and used for good. Not even in terms of, like, hurting people or taking advantage of people, but just um, making us lazier. Like, if I can have a—if I can think and have a little robot butler go get me uh, <laughs> dinner down, from, down the block at a takeout place and bring it back to me, then, you know, I don't know. Maybe that makes my life a lot better. I can't—I I, I don't honestly know. Um, it would be, like, what, are you thinking like Uber, but for brains? Well, you know what I really want is not so much getting things, but I would love to have an in-house stereo system that I can think what I want to hear and it plays it. Oh, that would be pretty sweet. Like the most <laughs> annoying thing in my entertainment life usually is trying to find music to play. Uh, whether it's going through Spotify and trying to search for something or going through my own music library. If I could just think. It's like it's like even taking out that extra step from Star Trek where you're just like, computer, give me Brahms's whatever concerto. <laughs> just, uh, if you could just think it, that would be pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, but uh, well, that's that's amazing. Where can we read more about this? Uh, you're you're going to be posting about this today. Is there... I am. Uh, so we're we're recording on today is Thursday. I think uh, it's so, Thursday. Yes, I will be posting the story on the site today. Um, and you're and listening the... to this probably the next week, so it yeah. should be on there. It'll be so. on the site. You should definitely check it out. Uh, there's video. It's very cool. Nice. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you know, um, listening listening to the researchers talk about it. I didn't get a chance to talk to the patient, um, unfortunately, but he has, he's released a couple of statements and, um, just it's, it's, it can be really life changing. I mean, yeah. what he said, and I'm actually just going to read this to you because it, I found it, I found it moving and hopefully somebody else will too. But, um, what he said was, you know, the study has been very meaningful to me as much as the project, uh, needed me. I needed the project. Um, the project has made a huge difference in my life, and it gives me great pleasure to be part of the solution for improving patients' lives. Uh, I joke around with the guys that I want to be able to drink my own beer and to be able to drink at my own pace. And when I want to take a sip of my beer, I don't want to ask somebody else to give it to me. Mm -hmm. I really miss that independence. I think if it was safe enough, I would really enjoy grooming myself, shaving, brushing my own teeth. That would be fantastic. Um, so, you know, I mean... <sighs> That just yeah. like that to me, like this guy's name is Eric G. Sordo. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he was talking about how easy it was and having this sort of almost uh, out of out of body experience. Uh, what he said was, um, and this is another direct quote, I just wanted to run around and high five everybody. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I can imagine it must be, especially if you've gotten used to in a way, you know, operating without a limb somewhere just like yeah it has to be a completely out of body experience to suddenly be able to use your brain to make things happen in that way yeah um, that's um, awesome yeah so you know uh, this is something that i think we're going to be seeing a lot more of probably in the next decade um you should definitely keep your eyes peeled because obviously there are these huge therapeutic uses for people who you know are in these kind of like traumatic things which are <laughs> not to bring it back to mad max frequently car accidents yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the idea that we could make um, their lives a little bit better, a little bit easier uh, and give them a little bit more control back really appeals to me. That's awesome. Um, well, cool. Well, I, I guess we're going to there's not really a way to transition to this. We just want to. This is our segue. It's going to be a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, on May 31st, uh, Halt and Catch Fire uh, 
premieres its second season on AMC. I love this show, and it also promises to have a very cool plot line involving some of its main female characters this season. So I'm going to be talking to its two creators, Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers, right after this. I am back with Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers, uh, a.k.a. the Chrises and the creators of Halt and Catch Fire, the television show on AMC, which is premiering its second season this Sunday, March 31st, um, and which I am very excited about because I'm a big fan of the show. Um, Hi, guys. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. I feel like this has been long uh, long in development, this podcast uh, date, if you will, just because uh, I was so... I, I feel I feel like I've been very loud on Twitter about you guys and the show. <laughs> you were an early advocate of ours, and we were, we were very grateful to hear that, that you were digging what we were doing so yeah. early on. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, it was amazing. I mean, I... I, it always sounds sort of bad to say like I was so pleasantly surprised that you know you guys got a you guys got a second season, but I mean I think for fans of the show you know that kind of got a, got a little bit of a culty following, and that was actually you know that was like a real it felt like a real underdog moment I feel like for for the show itself. Uh, how was uh, were were you guys surprised at all, or was that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think pleasantly, you know. I mean, I think you know, credit to AMC for for wanting to kind of give it a little more rope, and you know, they have a history of sticking with shows, uh, you know, that go on to be Mad Men and Breaking Bad and things like that that don't initially heat up their first seasons. But we really kind of thought the work was there and the characters were there, and the fact that people didn't discover it uh, wasn't because the story was lacking. So we were excited to kind of improve on what we felt was working, and and you know, uh, continue to live with these characters and. Uh, so we were kind of elated, obviously, when, when we got the chance to do a second season, uh, especially one kind of built around the idea of mutiny uh, in Cameron and Donna's company. Totally. Did you guys find that um, those characters just feel, felt like a good direction to run in by the by the end of that season? Because it seems like, like, at least from the, the promotional material that's come out, that that's a big focus of the second season, mutiny. Yeah. I think, it, you know, we... we it's interesting. There's like the show you conceive in your mind, uh, you know, that Chris and I had initially come up with, and then there's the show that evolves when you bring on the the other writers uh, and the the you know the key crew and the producers, and you know, as the conversation evolves with the network, there's there's the show that finally ends up airing on television once you've cast people and uh, decided on what it's going to look like and bring your directors on. So Chris and I really tried to keep an open mind throughout the whole thing, and you know, we really saw that the show. The show in the first season is focused on the partnership uh, between Joe and Gordon, but these other characters were just um, popping so well and, and, and coming across so well in the performances, especially, you know, from Mackenzie Davis and, and Carrie Bechet and, and, and even Toby Huss, who plays John Bosworth. We ended up with five great characters throughout season one. And because the show is focused on technology and, and how fast that world moves, we thought it would be great to take the first season and really upend it by the end where, you know, Cardiff Electric, we, we've told that story and now we're going to tell uh, the offshoot of that, of that journey in, in the form of mutiny and the form of uh, Donna and Cameron focus on a new partnership. And of course, all of our characters are coming along for that ride. It's just, it's just a question of who's driving that boat in, in one given moment. And totally. that's what's so about doing a, doing a show that's focused in technology. Yeah. And we should give some background maybe for some people who have yet to catch up on the show, which it is on Netflix and um, you have no excuse now, uh, is uh, that that the two of the female characters, two of the central female characters have kind of broken off from this sort of uh, old school computer company, Cardiff Electric, um, and sort of started their own, I guess it's like a prototypical online gaming company uh, out of out of a house full of hackers essentially so it's definitely a different direction for the plot um and did you i mean that's such a it seemed sort of like it was building towards that but by inserting that that plot into the end into the last episode it almost felt like well now i have to see what happens next and it's almost like it's almost like telling amc look 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 what's gonna happen like um but yeah, it's really exciting. I have to say, like on a very, very nichey personal note, uh, like Toby Huss, um, who obviously, like 
for people, maybe not obviously, is obviously might be the wrong word, but he was on um, he was on the Adventures of Pete and Pete as as Archie, the strongest man in the world, and um, he also was a veteran of this um, really weird late night theater thing I used to do in Iowa City when I was in high school called No Shame Theater. Um, (laughs) And he's like kind of like this local celebrity there in Iowa City. So when I saw he was on the show, I thought that was that was super wild. (laughs) He's great. I mean, like uh, Toby, you know, casting Toby, we've talked about this before. And, and, uh, you know, when Toby came into audition, it was not it was not what we expected when it came to John Bosworth. Mm -hmm. I think we we pictured someone with like a really heavy center of gravity and like that state Texas businessman. And Toby came in and I remember in his audition, um, we actually, the casting director had trouble keeping Toby in the frame of the camera because he was all over the room. Uh, and he had so much spry energy and it was just a completely different take on the character, but one that Chris and I loved. And so bringing him on was, was, was such a great decision because that character became so much more than I think we even originally had conceived. Yeah, and I mean, if a TV show is working, you're, you're treating it as like an evolving, living thing, and, and, and casting is such a huge piece of that. There's the people you write on the paper, and then there's the people that kind of show up for the camera once you put your actors in there, and, and he just gave us so many options, you know, we probably didn't have with our initial conception of that character, and that's true of every single person on this cast, you know, and, and if you're smart, I think you listen to that, and you you chase that, and you write to that, and yeah. you know, I think that's that's been the story of the show so far. Yeah. yeah. I was going back and watching the first season, just sort of, you know, refreshing myself a little bit. And that, you know, especially on second viewings, that that those performances are so rewarding to see the second time around, I think. Um, I I wanted to talk about something that comes up a lot for us here at The Verge for entertainment and especially kind of entertainment that revolves around the world that we look at anyway. And um, the continual problem of making computers and making technology compelling and dramatically compelling. Um, How did you guys kind of uh, decide you wanted to approach that last season? And is that changing at all this season? No, I mean, that's our our (laughs) all-the-time problem. (laughs) Fantastic director Juan Jose Campanella, who directed a couple of our episodes, uh, our pilot last season, and, and a couple for us this season. You know, just very bluntly said to us in his thick Argentinian accent, uh, right from the go, was like, "Guys, computers are boring. How will like, we do this?" This um, is so boring. Is that all it does? <laughs> I mean, these things look like giant calculators. I mean, they're yeah. they're. I'm geekily obsessed with them, but I think that uh, making them dramatically interesting is tough because you know, we'll be like. Yeah, and then Cameron goes and she codes something. And then it's like, well, what does that look like on screen? Right. It just looks like Mackenzie hunched over a keyboard <laughs> typing. Um, so, you know, but I think it was the directors were really keyed into that. And we were always careful to make sure that the characters were pushing the the, the drama and the plot forward and that the, the computer backdrop and setting was always in service of the character drama. Um, I think, like, whenever we were in the writer's room and someone was, like, started talking about peripheral drivers and like everybody's eyes were glazing over we'd be like wait a minute i think we're off track yeah yeah i think the show i mean you know and and one of the hazards of the show is i think people you know maybe conceive it as a story about technology or about computers and really it's it's about the people you know that come up with these things and how they kind of put their own problems and their own passions into the things they create so so i think whenever uh, you know the focus isn't on the creator uh, when it's on the invention, you know, we, we need to kind of yeah. refocus. And that said, season two, you know, it's going to, you know, when we're in this house, the mutiny house is my, is my favorite set we've ever built just mm-hmm. because it's so much fun. And even though it is, you know, full of a bunch of guys coding, they're, they're, they're now working on video games. They're working on, you know, online dial-up networks. And the guys themselves are so much fun. And we cast this amazing Greek chorus of, of coders around uh, Cameron and Donna this season that we're just so excited for everybody to get to know um, just because of the chaos element of that um, and the punky hacker element of that, I think is a lot yeah. of fun to watch. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. No, I, uh, I feel like it, it definitely has that energy of, of social network or something, but being able to have it in this, um, I think for a lot of viewers, kind of a nostalgic time period and setting, um, like you talk about big clunky computers being not compelling, but for a lot of people, it's like, oh man, I remember when things looked like that. I got yeah. actually watching the first season part of it with my mom, and she's like, oh man, I, I remember I used to have something like that in a place I used to work. Like, um, but I think I read an interview. Uh, I think it. Uh, I think it was both with both of you guys. I think um, Cantwell. You mentioned that your dad had worked in Dallas as. Uh, 
in, in computers in some capacity. Yeah. yeah um, my dad, um, my dad came down from Chicago when I was about six weeks old and he got a job, um, in software sales in Dallas at a company called Ucell. Um, and he moved us all down there just because there was so much opportunity in computers going on in Texas at the time. And, and he went to work very much for a company that's like Cardiff Electric. Yeah. Uh, my dad is not Joe McMillan. Uh, <laughs> my dad might like to think he is uh, at certain times. He'd be like, man, that's great. I remember when I was like, dad, you didn't do anything like this. Mm-hmm. But I think like my dad would have definitely been working at the company that Joe would have come into. And the dynamic between Joe and Gordon, I think, was definitely inspired by stories my dad had of being a salesman and yet having to bring the sales engineer with you who knew the nuts and bolts of the technology. And so when it got down to the nitty gritty, could speak to that. But the personality types are so different between uh, the salesman and the engineer that that definitely influenced uh, Gordon and Joe from the beginning. But right. uh, but yeah, he just watched the industry change so much um, from one moment to the next. I mean, he worked up until uh, 2005. Um, oh, wow. when he retired in a couple months or a couple months after he retired from his last job. Um, IBM came in and acquired that company. So IBM was always nipping at these these uh, companies in Texas at their heels. Um, mm. They were always really close behind. So that underdog spirit informed the story as well. Yeah, at least one. Um, yeah, and it kind of reminds me of at least the. I think I think Halt and Catch Fire gets uh, compared a lot in terms of the office dynamic a little bit to Mad Men, at least the first season, because you've kind of got a perioded setting and you've got this sort of mysterious leading male. Um, but I think like also, I mean, Matt Weiner has talked about how, you know, he was Sally Draper's age when in that time period. And so it's almost like going back and having this a memory, but kind of a nostalgic memory of a time and a place and kind of a setting Uh and I was wondering if that was at all, if that affected how you wrote about it, how you pictured the characters, anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say that, you know, the Mad Men comparisons, I think we were bound to get as a, yeah. a, a show that was on AMC that was also a period drama um, with, a, with a mysterious man in its center. But we really tried to um, thwart that as soon as possible because... In order to tell the story of what we wanted to do, which was the story of reinvention and sea change in the tech industry, we had to start um, in the old guard, in, the, in these companies like Cardiff Electric, and then have Joe, Cameron, and Gordon come in as the renegades. And now in season two, those guys are almost seen as the older guard, and now we're seeing the renegades amidst the renegades. Like, mutiny itself, you know, needs Cardiff Electric in order to be the thing it is in season two. And- yeah, and I, I think when you're doing a period show, you know, you're trying to kind of serve two masters and that you want people to to feel like you got the details right in a way that's transporting and takes you back to, you know, the, this like morning in America moment with, with Reagan where things are exciting and the, and the sounds and the music and, and the look and feel of things are right. But you also want the show to feel modern and accessible to a modern right. audience, you know, and, and have the sense that you know, you're inhabiting a drama that, that still makes sense and, and resonates today. So, I mean, um, it was really fun to do both of those things, but obviously, you know, the challenge, because, I mean, I think I was born in 1980. I know I was born in 1983. <laughs> I think I was born. Uh, you know, and then the second season takes place in 1985. Uh, so, you know, you're using your historical research and also a lot of interviews, but, you know, the verisimilitude is important but it can't be the whole show right it has to be about people and and, and themes that still feel important to us now uh, as we watch it in 2015 yeah i think i mean obviously uh mackenzie's character uh cameron is somebody who definitely leaves an impression from the from the show and obviously obviously she's having a better uh, or like a bigger profile in this in the second season and you know, you make a lot of mention in, in the first season, she talks about Ada Lovelace, about all these kind of pioneering female programmers. And I was wondering if that was kind of something that you had set out to have be a focus of the show, or if that was just something that came about organically in the writer's room. Because um, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it, it was a really pleasant surprise for me watching watching the show. It was something we, I will say that we, we intended to have the women become a bigger part of the story from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it's, it's buried in the pilot and it's very subtle, but Donna is an engineer as well. Mm-hmm. And we see that when she takes apart um, Joni's speak and spell. Yeah. And we wanted to seed that because we wanted, we, wanted the, we wanted to sow the seeds of a character that wasn't just going to be the housewife and the support system for Gordon Clark's story. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, th- those characters were, were always going to be the, the secret weapons and the really interesting part of the story that would start to move things forward and, and maybe uh, take over from the male story and even compete with the male story in a really interesting way. Yeah, and I mean, I think as you're telling the, the story of technology, you know, this is a moment when there are historically more women in STEM careers and in STEM graduate programs than, than there might even be now, you know, and what really kind of changed things was the way computers were initially marketed uh, as kind of these toys for boys, and it created this idea that, you know, boys should be over here doing this math and science-based thing, and, and this wasn't a field for women, so to represent you know, uh, some of the women in this field and, and kind of this alternate history of, uh, you know, how things developed, you know, it, it, was, it was great to kind of be able to, to highlight the role of a Mackenzie Davis or a Carrie Bechet uh, against this backdrop of a story I think we all knew and we all thought just came through this one place, Silicon Valley, and these two guys and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of her kind of drive in the first season comes from trying to make the computer a more uh, organic feeling, uh, like something that feels like your friend. And do you think that that's something that I mean, I'm not actually sure where that sort of notion came from, like actually historically. But um, I mean, that just seems like something where it it could be seen as like a stereotypical female role to try to make something feel lovable. But at the same time, it's it's such an important shift for the way that people thought about computers. That's that's interesting because I, I think the, the thinking there was that, you know, uh, working on computers, so much of that for the camera character is about trying to find connection. And, and that's yeah. kind of the only place she doesn't feel foreign and that's a language she speaks and she feels at home. So the idea that a, a computer should be able to connect back with you, um, you know, that, that was kind of more of a character-driven thing. I never thought of it as a... Uh, a female driven thing, but it's certainly like at the core of that character and, and really kind of the impetus behind the company she starts at the end of the season. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that this season is kind of based around. Yeah. I think if anything that, that I remember breaking that last season and it was, we wanted to put that, the true visionary quality in someone's mouth and in someone's head. And I think that's like you just said, that's what happened with computers, you know, especially with Apple you know, where computers suddenly became much more of an interactive, almost sentient object. And I think Cameron seeing that and Joe, Joe kind of seeing it, but Joe also being lured away by the, the need to succeed in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. seeing that like pull Joe apart, but Cameron being the one that's really pushing on this thing needs to be able to talk to you. You need to, it needs to make you feel, um, you know, when they all see the Macintosh or when Joe sees the Macintosh, uh, last season, I think we wanted to, we wanted it to hit him that, that he's absolutely wrong and Cameron was absolutely right in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing you were mentioning about Cameron that I um, that I think is really important about the show is that while, you know, I wouldn't say that most of the characters or most of the central characters are necessarily very well adjusted uh, psychologically, because if they were, then it would be boring. Um, I, I think that it was refreshing to see characters who were interested in technology and interested in innovation not be um, either played for laughs like on a show like Silicon Valley or something like that and also not just seen as um, fundamentally broken like uh, I don't know the way the way that Mark Zuckerberg is portrayed on um, uh, in social network um, have you gotten a lot of feedback back from people who work in these industries just about like the kinds of people that you're portraying and the depth I mean, yeah, you know, from from the industry, I know that we we read this. Um, there was a New Yorker piece about Mark Andreessen. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. It, last week, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been a really uh, big fan of the show, and that means the world to us, just because he comes out of that world and he's a guy that um, I think possesses a lot of those visionary qualities um, that we want our characters to. And it's good that he's he's seeing them uh, genuinely in the in the people we've created in the show. I think you know it's important for us to make sure the characters at the end of the day, they all have true motivations. Um, And even Joe, we talk about this with Lee Pace a lot. Um, You know, we and Lee try to make sure that Joe McMillan always believes in what he's trying to do. And he really is zealous and uh, passionate and almost obsessed with the, the potential that computers have and and where they can go. And, And even though he can come across, come across quite, warped and 
um, manipulative and and have a lot of problems of his own. Like he's a guy that really really believes. He's a true believer. Yeah. Uh, we never want Joe to come across as a, a snake oil salesman. Um, he's a guy that that uh, he has a, a a noble goal in his head. But yeah, because I mean, what a, like a, a heartwarming optimism there is to people that do this that that choose to try to bet the future and just go out on a limb and say it's going to be this and and uh are so often wrong and are so often not rewarded for for you know uh that risk you know i, I think there's kind of something wonderful about people that just keep putting themselves out there um and we wanted to to capture that and i i like to think we have I mean, we received some nice feedback and you know we we do base a lot of it on work with consultants or or things we've read but um you know uh, the idea that the people who created these things weren't geniuses from the start and weren't, uh, you know, <laughs> complete introverts, uh, yeah, behind their spectacles. Uh, it was important to us to, to, to show the well-rounded people that actually kind of came up with this stuff, right. even if they have some defects that were fun to characterize on TV. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's, it's all, it's all part of the plot, you know, like you said, it's, it's this need to connect that all these characters have that makes them want to pursue these things. It's, um, well, uh, we should probably wrap it up, but um, I, I really wanted to thank you guys for uh, for coming on the show and, and being our first guests on on the podcast. Um, it was really awesome to talk to you. It and, was great to uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah. you know, I mean, you guys really understood the show last year in a way that you know we we wanted it to be understood, and and we appreciate you know, you're making us the inaugural ones. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're I, I'm I'm totally looking forward to it. The the second season premieres again on uh, May thirty May thirty first Sunday, uh, ten p.m. Right. On ten p.m. Eastern, nine p.m. Central. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode. And thank you again to Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers for joining us this week. I'm Emily Yoshida. My co-host is Liz Lopato. And you can hear the ESP every other Wednesday on The Verge. You can also subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or the podcast app of your choice to hear more. Just search for Verge ESP. And be sure to tell us what you think about the show. Uh, You can tweet at us. I'm at Emily Yoshida. And Liz is at ms lapado and uh you can tweet us at the verge as well at verge we'll be back in two weeks and thanks so much for listening